Our scripture text this morning is Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, let's pray. Father, you've made us uh, to be treasure hunters. That's what we are as human beings. And we pray now that uh, you will open uh, the eyes of every heart here. I pray this beginning with myself, to see the treasure of Jesus Christ, the treasure of the kingdom of heaven, the treasure of your glory. And we pray that you would do that for everyone here, whether they're a Christian or a non-Christian when they came into this room. And we ask that your spirit would work savingly to give the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ today to many who are here. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we started uh, looking at these two parables uh, last week, and, and uh, they are rich, uh, literally and figuratively. Um, and we saw that they are treasure stories, right? They're both treasure stories. And uh, that's why I wanted to begin with them when we get into Matthew 13. Uh, we're kind of starting at the end of Matthew 13. Next week, we're going to go back, Lord willing, all the way to the beginning of Matthew 13, but this is a chapter, as I pointed out last week, that is full of a, a whole group of parables that Jesus tells, and parables are stories. That's the simplest way to understand them. It's a little more complicated than that, but we'll see that next week. But stories that Jesus tells in order to explain the kingdom of heaven to us. And I wanted to begin with these two treasure stories near the end of the chapter, because of all the things that Jesus teaches us about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13, the most important thing to take away is that the kingdom of heaven is the greatest treasure story of all. And that the the greatest treasure in that story is, as we saw last week, the treasure of the kingdom of heaven is the king of heaven. Right? I mean, he's the treasure, not the gifts, not what the realm of the kingdom of heaven, the rule of God, living under God's approval, living in loyalty to him, in love to him. It's not the gifts that come from that. It's the king himself. It's the relationship with the king. It is the king of heaven who is the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. And we thought together about how these two parables, in these two parables, Jesus is really describing himself. He's the one, especially in the first story. He's the king. What makes him such a glorious treasure is that he is the king who is willing to sell all that he had in order to bring the kingdom to his people. In many ways, these parables are like autobiographies. They're ways to understand Jesus' own heart. 
You see these two men joyfully willing to sell all that they have in pursuit of this treasure. And that, I contend, is a description of Jesus' own heart, who was willing to sell all that he had just to become a man, right? He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, just to become a human. We don't often think about that enough, you know. For him to go from second person of the Trinity, all eternity, to being a man. It's an infinite distance to cross, an infinite emptying he had to accomplish in order for that to be true. And then even further, once he'd done all that, he sold all that he had to give himself as the substitute for our sins on the cross, to literally be declared by the world worthless. That's what the cross said. Worthless, lowest point of the earth, least valuable life, and the great irony, of course, is that the, the leaders of the day were crucifying the Lord of glory, the Apostle Paul says, the greatest treasure of all. And so here we are confronted very graciously by this king. And uh, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper this morning, I want us to linger on the theme of choice that we touched on very briefly at the end of the message last week, the theme of decisions, the theme of our responsibility to respond with urgency to the treasure of the gospel. And um, we're going to look at the theme of choices and decisions through three stories, the story of the two men and the two parables, uh, our story, the choices in our stories, and then ultimately we'll finish as we go to the table with the choices in Jesus' story. But before we, need to do that, before we do that, we need to think a little bit about balance and imbalance, okay? Now, I'm going to tell you something you already know, but I'm going to explain it real quickly. It's good for me to admit it in public. I am imbalanced, okay? You didn't laugh, okay. I, you know, I high-five with my right hand. I'm heavily right-hand dominant. I point with my right index finger, Right, I, I write with my right hand. I swing a baseball bat from the right side. I'm heavily imbalanced. I, I don't use my left hand very much for anything. And not only am I imbalanced, but my car is imbalanced. If I am driving down the road and I take my hands off the steering wheel, Pat's already nervous. If I take my hands off the steering wheel, my car pulls to the right. It just does. And I know there are a lot of variables. Tire pressure, you know, angle of the road, all kinds of things. But my car, the, my point is this. If I take my hands off the steering wheel of my car and I leave it, the car, to itself, I'm going to pull to the right at the expense of the left. Now, our theology gets imbalanced too. Okay? And nowhere... Does it get imbalanced more quickly than when we try to put together the whole breadth of what Scripture teaches us about the relationship between God's sovereignty and our human responsibility? And the reality is that unless we have the, both hands of the Bible on the steering wheel of our theology, if you will, if we take our hands off, if we, take, if, we, if we don't have both of the Bible's hands on our theology, each one of us is going to drift, going to pull in one of those directions 
or another as our characteristic default spot, okay? And there are a lot of variables that produce that result. But the fact of the matter is, if you don't have the full range of the Bible's uh, teaching on these two subjects, guiding your theology, you're going to be imbalanced. And so when we look at this parable, and then next week when we look at the parable of the sower, we're going to feel a heavy teaching weight from Jesus on the theme of our responsibility, our choices, the urgency of our decisions. And so that's what we're going to be dwelling on this morning. So let's look first at these two men and their stories. See, Jesus teaches us both truths. Jesus doesn't just teach us that God is sovereign or just that God uh, or that man is responsible. See, the way we work with these two truths is we tend to emphasize one at the expense of the other, right? And Jesus and the Bible never, ever do that. In any given passage like this one, uh, one may be emphasized over the other, but never at the expense of the other. That's a huge distinction. And you can see it in, this, in these two stories of these two men. Th- this, these stories are about treasure that they see and then a whole bunch of decisions that they make. These men make decisions that describe the treasure. You see that? In fact, the only way we see the treasure, do you notice Jesus doesn't tell us how much treasure the man in the field found, right? He doesn't tell us how big the pearl is. Do you notice that? But we still see the value of the treasure. We can still see the treasure. How? Through the decisions that the men make. We know by watching their actions that these are great treasures. These are rare treasures. And their decisions bring the value of the treasure into focus for us. Neither man, notice that neither man sits on the opportunity. Neither man procrastinates or wastes any time deciding. In some ways, you can say that they're kind of rash, can't you? Neither man spares any expense or holds anything back. Neither man takes it for granted that the treasure will be there if he walks away. That it'll be there again for him to come and get whenever he wants to take a look at it. No, friends, they've seen a treasure. In both of these stories, Jesus is describing men who've seen a treasure, and seeing that treasure has changed their lives forever. Suddenly, they woke up that morning not knowing that such a great treasure existed, but in the course of their totally ordinary days, they have now come across a treasure that has changed them forever. Now they know that if they don't have that treasure, it doesn't matter what else they have, they don't have anything worth having. But if they have that treasure, They have the only thing that really matters. And you see that most clearly in their joy, don't you? It's not a stoic thing for either man, is it? The first man that Jesus tells us very explicitly that in his joy, in his joy, 
without any hesitation, he, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys the field so that he'll have secure title to the treasure. So there won't be any rival claimant to the treasure. He does whatever it takes to make sure that he has the treasure. And then the merchant, who's an expert in pearls, he's willing to put himself out of business in order to have that pearl. Just so he can have it. Just so he can have its beauty securely as his own. The treasure transforms anything that they might have thought of beforehand as losses into gain. It's just like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, isn't it? I kept thinking about Philippians 3 this week. Paul says, whatever things I counted as gain, I, whatever things were gain to me, I count them as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count all things loss, he says. He's saying this in prison, by the way. <laughs> Indeed, I count all things loss in view of the surpassing value, in other words, surpassing treasure, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them, most translations say rubbish. It's literally a four-letter word for excrement in the Greek. in order that I may gain Christ. Everything else, by comparison, is such a rare treasure. Everything else is junk. Flush it. It's amazing. And that's what these men are like. So now let's move. That's what Jesus is saying. That is what, if we saw the kingdom of heaven and we saw what it means to have God and to be reconciled to him, what it means to live in a right relationship with him, to be under his rule, we would see that that's not, that, that's not oppression, that's enrichment, that's not impoverishment, that's, that's fulfillment. And so let's move into our own stories, okay? Just like the men, our choices show how we measure the treasure, right? Our choices about Jesus our choices about God, our choices about his kingdom show what we really think the worth of the kingdom of heaven is, what we really think the gospel is worth. And that's true both at the beginning of the Christian life in our conversions, and that's true uh, throughout the rest of our Christian life in our discipleship. So let me, let's begin uh, by thinking about conversion, the radical choice of conversion. And yes, you heard me right. I am a card-carrying Calvinist. I am a Westminster Confession of Faith loving reform guy. And I just use the word choice and conversion in the same sentence. And I did that very deliberately because while election is unconditional, salvation is not. You and I must repent. You and I must believe. We must act in response to the gospel. We must move toward Christ. It is not good enough to see the cross. We must grip the cross. We must receive the cross. So think. First, if you're a non-Christian with us, I, you're the first person I need to address, and I want, I want to thank you for being here. 
But see, this is really important for you. It's not just important for Christians. It's really important for you too. And I want you to think about these two men in these parables that Jesus told us about. And I want you to think about what the choices they don't make. See, what they don't do is they don't say, oh man, look, this treasure's incredible. I didn't expect to find it here. This pearl's incredible. That's really beautiful. Wow, when I look at it, it's really encouraging. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just hide it here. I'm just going to put it aside. And then whenever I want to come back, whenever the lesser treasures over here disappoint me, I'm going to come back. And because I know where I can always find it when I want to, I feel very comfortable. Uh, Friends, so many people think that way about Jesus. It's a scary thing. Because you know what? Think about these men. Get get their wisdom. That's what I want to say to you. Uh, Gain wisdom from these men. Because what what Jesus is showing us through these men is that mere information about the treasure, a mere appraisal of its value, mere knowledge that it exists and is potentially available, that's not good enough. Right? That what matters is possessing it. Can you say that you possess Christ? Can you say that you have laid hold of Christ, my friend? Because unless you have seized the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and yes, you have to seize it. Unless you have seized the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you don't have him. So you might know that forgiveness of sins is available, but you don't possess it because you don't possess Christ. You might know that reconciliation with God and having him as your father, that that's available, but you don't possess that reconciliation. God is not your father. You might know that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of his people to absorb the wrath of God in their place, but because you don't possess Christ, you don't possess the covering of Christ. Friends, there is nothing more urgent than making sure that you actually possess Christ, and all you need to do is acknowledge to him that you're a sinner in the sight of God, that you cannot save yourself, and that your only hope is in the mercy of the very God against whom you have sinned. The gospel's amazing. That the God who is your problem is your only solution. And why would he ever want to do that? Because he is so incredibly loving. It's an awesome thing. So my non-Christian friends, I hope that you will not comfort yourself with the false comfort of knowing where the treasure can be found without seizing it. There is no greater tragedy in the universe than that. To be so close and yet so far. You know what it means? It means that you don't think it's worth the rest of your treasure, which means you don't really understand it. And I pray that God will give you a clear sense of the urgency of Christ. Don't procrastinate. Why do you assume that a sinkhole will not open up under your bedroom? That's the first thing I thought when I saw this story. It's like, am I ready? You know what procrastinators are? Jonathan Edwards says procrastinators are people 
who pridefully depend upon God for another day that may never be theirs. So friends, whether it's a meteor from the sky or a sinkhole from below, you need to acknowledge that your life is a vapor. It's time to seize the treasure. God's brought you here for one reason or another. I know the most important reason. It is to put the treasure before you so that you can seize it. So I hope that you'll do that. Now, Christian brothers and sisters, do you remember in your life, I want you to think about your, the radical choice of your, your conversion. Do you remember in your life when the gospel, do you remember the great change in your life when the gospel went from being a story to the story to your story? Do you remember that? Do you remember when the cross suddenly wasn't anymore just this uh, decorative thing from history, but it was about your story? That was about your sin? Do you remember that? And, and, and what did you do when you began to understand that? You, you, you sold all that you had, right? I mean, you gave yourself to Christ. You, you wanted Christ. You seized Christ with as much of yourself as you understood what, what you had. You, you sold all that you had, as it were, your, your life. You gave your life to Christ. And you received from him uh, his gifts. But let's be honest. How much did you really give him? And how much did you understand you were receiving from him? I mean, goodness gracious, if you think back to your conversion, what and, and your confused motives and your confused understanding. By the way, non-Christian friends, I hope you're listening into this. Because if in your mind you think that you have to have the entire theological outline of historic Christian orthodoxy, boom, together in order to become a Christian, that's wrong. Hallelujah. Okay, we're not saved by our theology. We're saved by Christ. And God is so generous that... John Owen is right when he says a little faith, a little faith gives a whole Christ. I mean, honestly, what did you understand about your sin? You just knew you were a sinner. And you knew because you were a sinner, you were under God's judgment. What did you understand about God? You knew he was holy. You didn't really understand what that meant. You know that now. And you knew that Christ was the Savior that God had appointed, but you didn't really understand his work. You just knew that you needed to seize Christ. And you did. And here's the amazing thing about God. God always gives you more than you understand at the time. It's an amazing thing. And so the the rest of the Christian life is this astonishing discovery that you were given more at the very beginning of the Christian life than you understood. The Christian life is not about getting more and more and more treasure. It's about growing in our knowing of the treasure that was given to us at the very beginning. That's what the New Testament teaches us. Now think about, think about what's happened since in your Christian life. The radical choices of discipleship. And the best way to understand discipleship, you know, living a Christian life, is that it is repeated, continual conversion. 
You're being converted over and over and over again to Christ every day, growing to understand and love the treasure that you have had from the beginning. You didn't understand its full magnitude. God had given you more than you understood. But as you grow as a Christian and you're every morning, I mean, this is, this is what the Christian life is like. It is every day giving as much as you understand of yourself to as much as you understand of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans 12:1, right, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable to him through Jesus Christ. That's every day. That's not once. And so more and more you understand who Jesus Christ is, more and more you understand which parts of your life need to be brought under the reign of Jesus Christ. You're growing in your, as you grow as a Christian, you understand yourself better, you understand Jesus better. And what's supposed to be happening over and over again is that you are making choices, friends. Choices. Every day where you are presenting all that you understand yourself to be to all that you understand Jesus Christ to be, and you're doing that over and over again. Think about these two men in the parables. So they've gained the treasure, right, in the parables. They've gained the treasure in the field. They've gained the pearl. Well, now they've got to keep it, right? So how are they going to keep the treasure? I mean, you can imagine... That, that they might be tempted after the beauty of the treasure might, wears off, gets a little dull after their youthful zeal begins to dull, that they might be tempted to sell the treasure to get some other treasures. You see, in order to keep the treasure, what are these men going to have to do? They're going to have to do exactly what I was just describing to you. We have to do in the Christian life. Every day, they're going to have to sell all that they have in order to keep that treasure. Every other desire, every other potential little tea treasure, they're going to have to be willing to have it, have it go away, to not control them because they have that central treasure. That's what, that's what Christian discipleship is like, friends. Choices every day. So we are giving as much of ourselves to, as we understand to as much of Jesus Christ as we understand over and over and over again. See, the only way those men are going to keep that treasure is if they, when they look at it with each passing day, they see that there was more worth there than they thought at the beginning. So in other words, when they look at that treasure day after day, friends, when you and I look at Jesus Christ day after day as Christians over the course of our pilgrimage, we, what will keep us abiding in Christ is seeing that in Christ there is an inexhaustible storehouse of riches that we did not appreciate even just yesterday. And that's why joy is such a big deal. See, because the joy that we have as Christians is supposed to get deeper and fuller. Our response to the treasure. See, joy is the real power here. Joy in the treasure is the power. So may I ask you about your joy, friend? May I ask you, 
about what role your joy in Christ has in your life. Or when I even bring that up, do you think back to a season in your past as a Christian where there was a better day in your life as a Christian? Friend, it's not supposed to work that way. Like I said last week, joy in the life of a Christian, joy is not a freak accident. It is a choice. It is a choice. It is not an accident. It's like, whoa, where the joy come from? That is not how a Christian is supposed to live. And let me, let me sharpen the description a little bit, be a little clearer. It's, it's not just a choice. It is the fruit of many choices that we make as Christians. Joy in the life of the Christian is, is the fruit of many choices that we make. And chief among those choices is, are we pursuing joy in Christ? Friends, this is utterly critical. If I told you that there was a good restaurant and I didn't look like I was still smacking my lips, you wouldn't be interested in going there. This is utterly critical to how we portray Jesus Christ, how we describe him to the world. So if we're walking around as people who are not joyful in the Lord Jesus, we are not telling the truth about him. And when I say joyful, I am not talking about happy, clappy, yippy, skippy, zippity, doo kind of stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of joy that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 6.10, where he says, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I'm talking about the kind of joy the New Testament shows us that, that no trial can reach, that no trial can destroy. The joy that is born from remembering that come what may in your life, cancer, unemployment, poverty, estrangement, those things do not define you, for you are the man or the woman or the teenager or the toddler who has the pearl of greatest price, that that's who you are. And when we realize how beautiful and how wonderful that treasure is, a joy is produced What kind of choices am I talking about that you have to make? Well, every choice that brings the king into sharper focus for you. Every choice that you make in life about whether or not you're going to pay attention to the gospel again. Every choice that that you make to set Jesus consciously before you, like the writer of the Hebrews says in chapter 12, to fix your eyes upon Jesus, right? Right? the author and perfecter of faith, to fix your eyes on him. Every choice that you make to do that. Now, if, you, if you're in our kitchen at, at our house, in, in the upper left-hand corner of our freezer, there are two pictures of, uh, of our wedding day. And in one of the pictures, uh, Maria and I are exchanging our vows. And in the second picture, uh, it's right after, you know, we've been pronounced man and wife and we're walking down the aisle together. Now, sometimes when I'm in the kitchen, I walk right past those pictures. Sometimes I look at them, and then other times I look into them. And when I look into them, the story of my wedding and therefore the story of my marriage gets bigger. At least my understanding of that story gets bigger. And when I look in, when I look into those pictures, 
I know now that I did not know then the treasure that Maria was giving to me. Friends, the gospel is a lot like that. You can look, you can, you can totally stop looking at it. You can just sort of glance at it out of the corner of your eye. If you do that, joy is not going to be produced from those choices. But if you look into the gospel, you look into that story again and again, and that is exactly what the table is, by the way. Jesus is saying, I want you to look the story into the, in the eye again. If you look the story in the eye, as it were, you're going to see that that story of God's grace and of the treasure of belonging to Jesus is way bigger and way better than you thought it was the last time you looked at it. And what will happen is that your joy will get bigger. What will happen is the power of the greatest treasure story in the universe is going to be released more and more in your life. So I need to ask you this question. It's very concrete. What role, what size footprint does the Bible have in your life, friend? You say, uh, there isn't much joy in my life. The first thing I want to ask you is how much, of, how much space do you give to the word of God in your life? This is concrete. Are you looking into the story? Are you rehearsing it? Do you come to worship on Sunday morning not having worshiped at all throughout the week? And then you're surprised that you're not joyful. You should not be surprised. You should be worshiping and rehearsing your heart. You should be speaking the gospel to your heart through the scriptures all week long. And then when you come here on Sunday morning, you are going to see that there is the fruit of joy that God bears out of your life. Friends, you can't ignore the story and expect joy to strike you like a lightning bolt. It's not a freak accident. You say, yes, but it's the fruit of the Spirit. So I should wait for it. Wrong. What's the first listed fruit of the Spirit? Love. Does that mean that, does that mean I can just choose not to love? I can wait around until God enables me to love? Uh Uh-uh. Tell that to your wife, husbands. Right? That can't be the truth. So look into the gospel. And when you look into the gospel, you're going to look at the choices in Jesus' story, friends. And those choices are absolutely amazing. How are you and I going to make choices to keep the treasure of Jesus over and over again? Well, there's only one way. We're going to be looking into the choices that Jesus made to bring us the kingdom. It is seeing the choices that he has made for us that will sweep your heart off its feet. It is absolutely stunning. Friends, we are not the treasure that Jesus was willing to sell all that he had for. No, God, the glory of his Father was the treasure that he was willing to sell all that he had for. And he gave up everything so that we could have God. See, we're not the treasure Jesus gave himself up for. We're the recipients of the treasure that he gave himself up for. Do you know what the greatest offense of our sin is? The greatest offense of our sin is that with every sin, we're saying God's a liar. We're saying he's not glorious. We're saying he's not good. We're saying he's not worth it. We're saying he's not, he's not precious. He's not treasure. We're saying other things are better than him. And, and that's an offense against the glory of God, which was the treasure that Jesus loved the most. 
And so what choice did Jesus make for us in response to our offense? He, he sells all that he has in his incarnation and then again in his crucifixion. He divests himself utterly to prove that we were wrong, to show that God is worth it. Jesus is saying to us from the cross that his father is the greatest treasure and he's willing to put himself in our place as the greatest of all offenders so that we'll be shielded from the folly of our sin so that we can then personally experience the treasure and know that he was right. And what's the greatest loss of our sin? Have you ever thought about that? It's the glory of God, the treasure that Jesus prized the most. Because the worst thing that sin that we lose with our sin is we we lose fellowship with God. We lose reconciliation with God. We lose the treasure that God is. There is no greater loss than that. And what, what choices did Jesus make in response to our loss? I mean, it's just amazing to me to think about this. And the table gets, you look at this table, it's the same table, right? Over and over and over again. It's the same cross over and over and over again. But, but God grows your heart to see more of what, what he has done in Jesus. The choice that Jesus made to go to the cross is Jesus put himself in the place of our lostness. Jesus was not only giving himself to be the greatest of all offenders to bear our sin away, but he was also willing to bear all the consequences of our lostness, to be the most lost man who ever lived. To throw himself into our lostness so that we would know the glory of God. You see, what is love? What love is is love is a desire for the beloved to experience the best possible thing. And Jesus knows that there is no greater treasure than God himself. Now, some of your hearts are totally agreeing with that right now, and others of you are highly skeptical. But Jesus had no doubts that to have God is to possess the greatest of all treasures. And so what did Jesus in his love do? He gave himself so that we might enjoy the greatest treasure we could possibly ever have, and that is God himself. Now, those choices, if you dwell on them, if you look into them, friends, they will produce joy and they will empower your choices in discipleship and God willing, they will also empower the radical choice to give your life to Christ this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray now for those choices of Jesus to capture our hearts yet again as we come to his table. We pray in Jesus' name.